0: What do you suggest for companies to start making sure that they're actually a welcome place so that they can recruit a diverse set of talents, right? What should people who are founders or leaders in companies be doing to make sure that they are welcoming? How should they be thinking through that?
1: To invest in it, to learn, right? To go, what is it needed to make this an accessible workplace? Because how are your products going to be accessible if your workplace isn't? So think about it from, I'm an employee, and think about it throughout the whole life cycle of that employee's career, all the way into the product. Do the learning. Talk to people with disabilities. Run tours of your building to say, what are we missing? What is good? Because it doesn't begin and end at at the product, Melissa. It begins and ends as your company. Because if your company doesn't have a culture of accessibility and inclusiveness, you have no hope in your product being able to. So it starts from I'm an employee before it becomes I'm a user and I'm a customer.
0: Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello and welcome to the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Dave Dane, who is a Director of Accessibility at Microsoft. And we're going to talk about what product people can learn about accessibility and how they can make sure that their products are inclusive for everyone. So welcome to the podcast, Dave.
1: Thank you, Melissa, for having me on. Huge fan of
0: yours. Great. So can you tell everybody what is a Director of Accessibility? And also, how'd you, what's your story? How did you get into tech? How did you start doing this for Microsoft? Where did it all begin?
1: Wow, that's a lot of questions right off the bat. So the director of accessibility, what what my role is, the director of accessibility on Surface, is to ensure that I'm working alongside with the product makers to ensure we build our devices that are um, accessible for people of all different abilities, as well as working with my other accessibility peers in Windows and Office to ensure we have a really good extensive experience for people with disabilities that don't only simply just empower them, but also make it in a way that's on brand and on design to make sure that they don't stand out by using those features. So how did I get into tech? I remember trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up and, um, For the people on the podcast that I don't know, I was born with cerebral palsy, and I use a power wheelchair. And in 1971, there wasn't really much somebody with a disability could do. But luckily, my parents were stubborn and resilient, got me into school, and it was time to go to university. And I didn't know if I wanted to go into computer science because I really enjoyed technology because it allowed me to build a world that was accessible and inclusive through technology or business, which I had a lot of passion for. That was way before product existed. So I went to school for engineering and I learned two things. One, that I wasn't the greatest production engineer that was ever. uh, And two, I really had a passion for the bigger picture of what technology can do to enable and solve problems. And the business aspect of it of how do we make it viable and all those kind of things. So that got me into product and I started working before it was called product. I think I was a project manager before I became a product manager. But I always loved building products that solved user problems in a way that helped make them be a better version of themselves. So I was doing that. What I didn't like about product was we had to do all our analysis and design up front and hope the world wouldn't change over the next two years while we quickly built it and put it into people's hands. In came Agile. It gave us a way where, as a product person, I could be wrong. And the beauty of it was because I could iterate and learn quicker. I didn't have to do all my learning up front. I could do the learning as I deepened the relationship in the problem space and build better relationships with the user base. So that's what got me into Agile, and I was so good at it. I was doing Agile for a number of years, up until the last few years where I returned back to product, which was my first love.
0: That's great. And then at Microsoft, you're running the this team that is making sure that you have accessibility requirements in different things. How do you work across the different product managers to make sure that they're considering the accessibility uh, requirements, making sure that it gets on the backlog, seeing that they actually see the importance in it?
1: Well, we're not spoon feeding them the requirements per se. We're really trying to get them to understand a diverse set of users, to have that empathy and understanding that not all users might be like the ones around them. So what we do is do, uh, part of our group does a lot of user research. We run inclusive design sprints where we get people with disabilities sitting alongside with product makers and subject matter experts where we really try to help the teams gain valuable insights so that they take the insights and formulate their own requirements to make sure we build products that meet the need. The importance of doing this, Melissa, is we believe in designing with people with disabilities. We're not designing for people with disabilities because we want to make sure we're making sure they're part of the design process. So we make sure that we don't miss things or put our own biases in Because sometimes if we just leave it to meeting accessibility standards that are out there, there's a difference between meeting the standard and having incredible experiences. And just like any user base, we don't want to just meet their needs. We want to give them phenomenal experiences where they become champions of our product. Yeah, and
0: to get up to speed on all these different disabilities and you know different ways that people have to interact with stuff how do you suggest people design with people with disabilities right you said make sure that you design with instead of design for like what practices or processes are you doing on a day-to-day basis to make sure you're doing that
1: well you need to understand um, inclusive design right and understand like mismatches and stuff so You need to get well-experienced in what does it mean to design inclusively. And it's weird. As a product person like you know, Melissa, when you start a new company, you try to learn the product. You try to learn the user base. You try to learn the market space. And when you're early on, it's just an upfront learning curve the whole way. The challenge I've had is not only did I have to learn that, but you're also trying to learn about multiple uses of disabilities. So you're educating yourself on that. And that's what product people can do as well, is learn all the different types of disabilities, not in a deep sense, but in a wide range sense. And then two, learn what assistive technologies that are out there that are independent of your product, but are the tools in which people use To manipulate your product, whether it's JAWS screen reader or other screen readers, where it's voice to text or voice navigation, learn how they interact with your product. And then thirdly, try to understand where the space is going for um, assistive technologies and what your competitors are doing.
0: Awesome. So you're the team that really researches all the disabilities and brings it to the product managers and also the product makers so that they can start to incorporate it into the rest of their backlogs.
1: That is correct. And we might also run inclusive design sprints, bringing subject matter experts, people of all abilities, and the product makers together to really bring out insights that can be used in designing the product right from the beginning.
0: Amazing. Okay. So when you do those design sprints too, who do you kind of recruit for it? What's that kind of look like? Do you do it on the kickoff for the projects? How would you run them?
1: Well, really, you know, in a perfect world, we can do them for all projects. But in reality, not every project's the same. It's, if it's a brand new product, that's where you have the most impact. We'll do some research to see what type of things we want to build in, to see what different types of people with disabilities should we bring in. And not only just disabilities, like, are they office workers? Are they artists? Are they creative? And really make sure we have the right balance of of users in the right context, as well as the right disabilities. And sometimes bring subject matter experts, from the medical field or the occupational therapy field, and the actual product makers themselves says we're synthesizing different insights and ideas that we can really look at things in a very holistic way before diverging on what we're going to build.
0: That's really cool. I love that you have this available too for you at Microsoft. Well,
1: it's not easy, right? We got yeah. to canvas our, our self-host people and, and those kind of things, which is part of the job, but then part of making sure we do it right. Because the last thing we want is somebody without that disability to try to push what they should be using instead of working alongside with that person with the disability.
0: And I imagine you run into that a lot where people maybe try to empathize or put themselves in your shoes or somebody else's shoes, but they don't really know that bias probably is pretty apparent in a lot of different places.
1: Right. We're all human in that bias, right? And that's where designing with people with disabilities helps remove that bias because I even have a bias, right? Two people with the same disability, aren't going to be alike. So that's why you need to make sure you have a wide, diverse range of disability to under, understand it. Because we all become habitual, right? So this is why I think when you're a product maker, whether you've been considered for accessibility or not, look for users with the extreme abilities. And it really helps you build a product that will be
0: resilient
1: across many different environments.
0: That's great advice. So you are part of this team, right, at Microsoft that provides these services and and helps. But what about the product managers at smaller companies or, or companies that don't have someone there to think about accessibility all the time? What would you advise those product people do so that they can make sure that they're being inclusive and building for everybody?
1: I think the first step you can do, Melissa, is start hiring people with disabilities, right? Like There's nothing better than you can do because before accessibility was a thing, I was on product teams, right? And I used to think it was weird as an engineer when the product manager would say, No, no, we'll build the accessibility in 2.0 of the product. And I'm like, Yeah, what? I got cerebral palsy. My money doesn't. So if you want me to buy the product, you better build a product I can use. But if I didn't happen to be on the team to raise that voice, How would you have that in your conscience? So I think the first step is hire with people with disabilities. And as you're doing that, because you're not going to, you know, you know, it's a natural hiring process as opportunities come available. When you're looking for test users, make sure you're getting a relative sample of people of all abilities in your design process, right? Just don't get standard users off the street. Look for diverse users. So when you're designing it, you're thinking about it in mind. And it's hard, right? Because a lot of it is where do we find them? You know, you can hang out in the uh, disabled parking spots at the mall. That's usually a good spot to find them. But, you know, you just got to be creative and recruit for it and then nurture that user community to have them available for you.
0: Yeah, and I think you're touching on something, too, that we talked about a little bit earlier in another podcast episode about product ethics. We got into these debates to... Not debates, but I think one of the things we were pointing out in that episode was you can still have your persona target person, right? Like your, your persona could be a salesperson at Salesforce or whatever, right? But that doesn't mean that that person doesn't have a disability. I feel like sometimes when we think about accessibility, people tie it into personas, right? But a lot of our personas in the way that we build things are not necessarily like, is this person disabled or not? They're more general. They're like, is this a mom with two kids? That doesn't mean that person doesn't, you know, have a disability or not.
1: And I think you're hitting on a good point, Melissa. People think the user persona is as the seeing impaired person, as a hearing impaired person. And really, we need to incorporate many different ability attributes to any normal persona we have, like a salesperson, right? To really make sure, because we're all going to get a temporary disability at one point. Like, I always love working with one of my colleagues. They'll have a skiing accident and they'll be like, wow, now we get what you got to go through. And it's like, everybody's going to experience that disability. So if we don't build a product that can be used by many different inputs or many different ways of using the product, you're really going to limit to who can use that product. So in every persona, you should go, what if the person's seeing impaired? What if they're hearing impaired? What if they have a, get anxiety with a lot of notifications? Like, There's so many things we should factor in building personas that are just more than what do they do with that? It's got to go beyond what is the job to be done. It should be what is the job to be done under many different circumstances.
0: Yeah, I really like that. That's a great, great way to think about it. Yeah, that always irked me. I feel like, you know, you, you probably hear this coming from the agile world as well. We're so obsessed with, you know, building MVPs or using agile to go fast, which is not the point, um, but we sometimes get dismissive about building in the things that we should be building in from version one, just like you said, where people go, oh, in accessibility, I'm going to put it in a 2.0. You've done a bunch of work in Agile, helping companies you know, adopt these methods, move towards this type of learning. When an organization tells you, oh, we can't think about accessibility or something like that because it might slow us down, what do you say to them, right? What What's the response and how do you get them to start thinking about this from day one?
1: I always like to say we're all going to be disabled one day. Just some of us beat you to it. So I might be disabled from birth. But as we age out, we're going to slowly lose our ability. And none of us can predict when that can happen. But when that does happen, is our product ready? To be able to still support that user that's become a loyal user through all aspects of their life. Like we all want to build the product that's going to live forever. And in order to do that, we always think about the product life cycle. I think we got to start focusing on the user's ability life cycle because we're all headed in the same path. So if we don't start thinking about it now... We're not going to build that long-term loyalty. We're not going to be able to support the modern places that use our product, which is more of a diverse set of users than it's ever been. No more is accessibility a compliance to standards for legal purposes. It's to really ensure your product is going to get the right user reach to be sustainable and viable to keep going. So, We can't think about it as a unique use case. We got to think about it as it's going to be the inevitable use case of everybody. So, why not start inspecting and adapting and building and learning and modifying now, especially in a digital environment where it's just time and money? When it's hardware, we got to factor in many different other elements like build and materials, cost and things like that. But if we don't start doing it now, we're going to be behind when our user market changes and they can no longer use our product.
0: Yeah, and I can imagine too for the people, like you said, in a, with a temporary disability, right, you break your arm or something, not being able to use the thing that you've just been able to use for so long must be really frustrating, kind of heartbreaking too when you're like, oh, I guess they did not design this for everybody.
1: Plus, let's look at other things, right? Let's look at closed captioning on TVs. You might not be hard of hearing, but let's say that same TV is at a bar. You see a lot of bars doing their sportscasts with closed caption because their environment around them is so loud. Now they're kind of deaf to the TV in that situation. So closed captioning helps level set the environment and not the person. So there's been a lot of assistive technologies that were designed originally for people with disabilities that got a broader use to really accommodate the environment under extreme situations where those mismatches exist that it may not be a disability but it's a mismatch in the ability to hear.
0: That's a fantastic example yeah I was just actually at a place the other day where I was mad because closed captionings weren't on for the Olympics and I'm trying to watch it and I couldn't understand anything that they were saying, but they had it on for the football game right next door. So uh, yeah, that's a really good point. It's not just about, you know, the person, it's the environment that the person is in and what they're able to do in that environment or not. Well,
1: there- it's like the curb cut effect we always hear about, right? Like mm-hmm. curb cuts were originally made for people in wheelchairs, but if, you're, if you have a baby carriage, now you have the same accessibility requirements as someone in a wheelchair.
0: Oh, yeah. That's a really good one, too. That's great. Are there any companies that you think are doing ex- or products that you think really nail it in the way that they think through accessibility?
1: Well, I, I would be shooting myself in the foot <laughs> if I didn't say. Microsoft does a great job, but I think Every tech company in general is doing a good job of of really ensuring where we're considering those aspects, more because that was the first field that people with disabilities were drawn to because it moved from physical labor to more intellectual and conceptual skills being used. But I think uh, more and more and more places are getting a good job of a building with accessibility in mind with just the way products are being built or thought of like Google glasses and stuff to be able to navigate things with your eyes that were originally done by, you know, eye readers to be able to do. I think any product that, that is any company that is using their accessibility capability as a marketing edge are companies that are doing it right, organizations that are hiring people with disabilities, and not for the sake of equality or winning humanitarian awards. Let's put that aside. It's to get that cognitive diversity where innovation comes from, from having people of different experiences, gender, sexuality, and ability to be a reflection of the product they build are a reflection of the people who use those products. So making sure you're making them with those diverse people ensures that they can be used by those diverse people. So companies like that are doing it well, are really building it in the fabric and the DNA of the organization.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you were just touching, too, about how you know people with disabilities turn to tech because you don't have to do more of the manual work. And I, I loved your story from the TEDx talk about how um, you, you kind of stumbled upon tech and then became a big expert in it. Can you, tell, can you tell our audience a little bit about, you know, your first job and when technology was introduced, how it really changed your life?
1: For sure. Well, when I graduated, it was like 1995. So even though it was finally like I could go to university, A lot of the workplaces weren't accessible, so it took me like nine months to find my first job. And when I got my first job, it was like a logistics training coordinator for a major automotive company, and it was a lot of paperwork, and my hands with cerebral palsy are very arthritic. So these hands were made for paperwork. On my first day, you know, they took me around, and then I went to use the bathroom, to find out, I couldn't fit in the bathroom, my wheelchair couldn't get in, and I didn't feel safe enough to ask for an accessible bathroom. So, what I had to end up doing was holding going to the bathroom every day for 12 hours for three years. And the reason why I tell that story is since the job was mostly paperwork and physical, it was taking me twelve hours what my peers could do in eight hours. And I didn't mind working twelve hours, but imagine restricting your water and being very careful to make sure that you wouldn't have to go to the bathroom for twelve hours. That's crazy. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Like, oh, I I'd like some water, but not gonna do it. Yeah. And so what I did was on the weekends. I was the first one in my office to get a computer in 1995 because they knew I used it extensively. And there was this new thing coming out called the Internet. And I built a website where people could sign up for training themselves. And the places where we're hosting the training could sign up the venues they wanted. So what was taking me 12 hours now was taking me three hours. So I made the status quo really the outlier that everybody else could utilize that technology to get their job done in three hours. So it wasn't like I was smarter than anyone else, but it was my diverse difference of being a person with a disability that made it a problem for me so bad that I was compelled to solve it first. Because to everyone else, eight hours seemed to be normal compared to their peers. They weren't under any pressure to get it done sooner. They didn't have to worry about going to the bathroom. So that, that was the way people always did it. And it wasn't to me that I had to solve for a mismatch that really made my extreme a problem worth solving that made them the outlier and me the desired outcome.
0: That's a pretty powerful story. I really love that too. And I I think that's a great story for companies to hear about, you know, why you should hire people with disabilities too, or, or people who are maybe just not exactly a carbon copy of what you already have, because if you put somebody in a situation where they have different problems or things to be solved, they're going to try harder, right? They're going to get more creative about how they do things. And I, I love your story for that, right? It's thinking outside the box because you wanted to figure out how do I make this better for me and that that I think it's a lot of good product you know product thinking and good product driven technology usage there
1: right because when you sell for the extreme situation Mm -hmm. it benefits everybody yeah we're told that as product people but man when you live it it's deep down and by no means does that mean you don't lower the bar of a product person you want but if you can get the product skills and say, and as an added benefit, they're different than the rest of us. That's when the creative thinking and the innovation comes from is people seeing different mismatches to what others see as just the way we've always done it. Yeah,
0: yeah that's a really good tip there. So when you're studying the different disabilities too and you you know you you mentioned you had to get up to speed on things that were different than your disability was there anything kind of eye-opening that you saw in there or something you went in there that didn't expect that you know some product people can be on the lookout for if they never even thought to think about those things
1: there was two things and I should have known this but it wasn't until I started doing deeper dive no two people with the same disability are the same and that seems to make sense, right? But you always want to group people. As product people, I think we're naturally inclined, oh, you're seeing impaired, you're seeing impaired, you must be alike, is the varying degrees where the same disability can have a wide range of of severity and impacts. So that was kind of the one thing that I, I learned. And secondly, You know, it seems to be invisible disabilities are where physical disabilities were in the 70s and 80s, where they're not well understood and nobody's being proactively to think about them and to look at them. Because I remember um, being a, a senior VP in one of my previous jobs, open concept really bothered one of our employees because they didn't have the ability to focus or concentrate. And my peers were like, well, they just got to get over it. And I'm like, wait a minute. If I needed a ramp to get in the building, none of you would have the courage to say, well, Dave, you better jump out of your chair and crawl up them stairs. You just got to get over it. So I think we need to be more mindful to people with invisible disabilities and try to be better at really being proactive in how we handle them because, we really need to make sure we're not leaving anybody behind in this world where we need different thinking than we did the last twenty years to get us to the next twenty years. And the only way we're gonna be able to do that is really to have the equitable platforms that allow the power of diverse thought exist so we can get ahead of these things.
0: I think that's really smart
1: looking to look good. And we got to be proactive in it, right? Because one of my concerns is nobody celebrates Disability Day as they do women in tech, as they do, you know, BLM and LGDBQ, which are all important aspects to make those demographics feel welcome in the workplace. So do people with disabilities. So often I hear is, well, we don't have an accessible bathroom or ramp, but The minute we hire one, then we'll make sure we have it afterwards. And that kind of lagging and thinking prevents people from wanting to work there. Can you imagine, Melissa, if they said, Well, we'll build a woman's bathroom when we hire one? Like, would you feel compelled to apply there? Probably not. Probably (laughs) not.
0: No. And you said that this was something that you actually went through, though, right, when you were searching for your first job.
1: Right. And I didn't feel safe to ask for it because I've always been uh, in my environment and in my settings. I tended to be the first one in, right? And the first one going through the changing of the thought process and the status quo. But even me, I never felt safe to ask for things until I feel I've proven myself. Like when I reduced the time from eight hours to three hours, They were willing to give me bigger product teams. They were willing to give me bigger groups. All I wanted them to do was build an accessible bathroom. But it wasn't until I felt comfortable that I belonged that I could ask for that. Yeah. Right? And I I faced that then. And even as I move in my career, um, at my last place, the meeting schedule would get shifted all the time, and it would move meetings to after hours. That was back when we went into the office those good old days mm-hmm. and I couldn't always align my support care worker to adjust their times and even though I've already been through this through travel um, through travel policies and procedures at every company I worked at, I still didn't feel safe to bring up. I can't be at the meeting because I can't rearrange my my support. So instead, I would miss the meeting. And it wasn't until I finally spoke up and said something like, hey, when we move the meetings outside hours, I can't accommodate my care, that not only did my boss go, absolutely, we'll fix that. I had one of my other coworkers. she emailed me and said, thank you. I was having trouble reshuffling my childcare every time, too. So sometimes when you speak up for your particular needs, it actually is relevant to other people in different situations that causes the same kind of problem. So, and I don't know if I'll ever get over that, probably because of my pathway through my career. But I'm hoping someday the future generations of people with different abilities. Don't feel they got to just kind of suffer in silence.
0: Yeah, it's it's disappointing that those companies didn't think through that first. And also, you know, in your position coming in, maybe being the first person there with a disability, but also doing what you do in agile change. Like we all know that people don't really like change, right? Like they don't like change makers. And there's this attitude of well that's different right that's uncomfortable and if if you are the person who's making other people uncomfortable because of their job right making them pushing them to learn agile pushing them to change the way they work right it probably doesn't feel like a safe space to advocate for yourself either with that on top of it i have a
1: problem with that because because i'm empathetic to feeling vulnerable right so i can always meet them where they're at and going What are you struggling with moving to this new way of working? What is it you think you're losing or what is it that's causing you the anxiety you need? I always try to approach to it what's in their way from using it so we can work together on it. So I think being empathetic to having to feel vulnerable and misplaced really helped me be the change agent to align with everybody that feels that way as I move them into a new way of working or moving in a new way of creating the right product.
0: Yeah, and that's an incredibly important skill, I think, for anybody who wants to be a changemaker is that empathy. I've seen people try to take the bulldozing approach instead and it never works. It never works. But for these companies too, you know, who might not be thinking about the needs, right? you know, we're not going to build the bathroom until we get you know, somebody who needs it. What do you suggest for companies to start making sure that they're actually a welcome place so that they can recruit a diverse set of talents, right? What should people who are founders or leaders in companies be doing to make sure that they are welcoming? How should they be thinking through that?
1: To invest in it, to learn, right? To go, what is it needed to make this an accessible workplace? Because how are your products going to be accessible if your workplace isn't? So think about it from, I'm an employee, and think about it throughout the whole life cycle of that employee's career, all the way into the product. Do the learning. Talk to people with disabilities. Run tours of your building to say, what are we missing? What is good? Because it doesn't begin and end at at the product, Melissa. It begins and ends as your company. Because if your company doesn't have a culture of accessibility and inclusiveness, you have no hope in your product being able to. So it starts from I'm an employee before it becomes I'm a user and I'm a customer.
0: I think that's some really powerful advice for all the companies out there who want to build better products. So thank you so much, Dave, for being on the podcast If people want to learn a little bit more about you, where can they go to read up on your work and hear your talks?
1: I guess Twitter at D-Dame, I tend to post stuff. I'm on LinkedIn as David Dame, but I share a bunch of videos because it's easier for me to record a video than to type. So I tend to do video more these days, even though I got a face made for radio, but you can go on LinkedIn and Twitter and see it there. And just reach out and ask. As you know, you've reached out a couple times. I'm more mm-hmm. than happy to answer.
0: Great. And I encourage everybody to go there. Check out Dave's work on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And thank you again so much for being on the podcast. We'll see you next time.
1: My pleasure.